from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan. Here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The La Nina effect. With all eyes on a possible El Nino this year, is it just weather causing more turbulence in the markets to kick off 2023? Record land sales across the U.S., but who's buying? I've been in this business over 25 years and never seen anything like it. A new report that shows just how hot the land market is to start off the new year. Chaos on Capitol Hill this week. A speaker has not been elected. But does it derail ag policy priorities in the new year? And in John's world. COVID and alcohol consumption. Now for the news. Farmers got a bit of a gift with Christmas at the end of the year last year with a big rally in the grains to end 2022. And the biggest moves came in the soybean complex on an Argentina weather rally tied to La Nina. But it seems the gears shift to start 2023. Soybean meal was the leader with gains of 20% for 2022. Soybean oil was up 13% while soybeans gained 14% or $1.85 for the year. The year-end rally in soybeans and soy products was pushed by strong demand for exports, but especially soybean processing with record high crush margins. Plus the recent heat and dryness in Argentina cut crop prospects for the number one soybean meal market in the world. Ag meteorologist John Baranek says La Nina has continued to linger for the third year in a row in Argentina. La Nina typically leads to drier and hotter conditions across Argentina and southern Brazil. It actually didn't materialize so much in southern Brazil this year, which was kind of interesting. Um, but that does, it's not over yet. So uh, we've had uh, some very dry conditions in Argentina. The process takes a couple of months. Um, models kind of say anywhere from January to March for that kind of uh, time frame to complete itself. Uh, and that will have some impacts going forward too. So the, the quicker it ends, the quicker we get into a, 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 a pattern where we're not driven by La Nina anymore. The Buenos Aires Grain Exchange rates only 10% of the soybean crop in Argentina as good to excellent, with corn only 15% good to excellent. Production estimates have been dropping in Argentina, with a notable agronomist recently lowering the soybean crop to 43 million metric tons. Well, here at home, we've been dealing with our own weather, including a powerful storm that hit California, bringing heavy rain, snow and flooding, along with that heavy mountain snow and high winds. The latest system coming just days after another storm walloped the state with dangerous flooding, forcing water rescues and evacuations. In Sacramento County, 40 people were rescued from their cars, according to the local fire official. Others were told to evacuate or shelter in place. The storm system causing significant flooding in urban areas and leaving creeks and rivers in northern California overflowing. Now, last Saturday, 4.75 inches of rain fell in a 24-hour period in Oakland, the wettest day on record. Roads, those were especially hit hard and so hard that the National Weather Service said closures were too many to even count. When you see the water moving this quick and rising like this, it's a little unsettling. When I opened one of my gates, there was so much water, it was gushing and it knocked me over. More than 12 million people across the South were under flood watches earlier in the week, with the heaviest rainfall expected in parts of Southwest Alabama, 
and southeast Georgia. And ice and snow to the plains and upper Midwest. Check out these images from South Dakota, where Interstate 90 from Chamberlain to Sioux Falls had to be closed after roads became impassable from large snow drifts. The snow ban bringing up to 12 inches of snow from South Dakota to Nebraska and also farther east to Minnesota and Wisconsin. Well, it was one of the biggest stories of 2022, higher farmland values. And now we're getting new numbers in about just how big a year it really was. Farmers National Company releasing its 2023 land values report. It says in most cases, landowners selling property experienced values never before seen for their farmland. It says the final results at auction set records in several states and have increased year to year values between 20% to 34% across Corn Belt states. The company says it saw a new record sales volume of $766 million last year. That exceeds the previous record set in 2020. And it says the majority of sales came through auctions with increases in both total transactions and acres sold. And one company leader saying what we're seeing is true supply and demand scenario that there are simply more buyers willing to bid on the limited amount of land coming to the market. Our data is still showing that nearly 80% of the buyers, the final buyers of land, are still those local uh, owner operators that have been looking to add land to their uh, operation. Uh, but with that being said, the reason that there's so much competition in the market is that you have these either individual investors or investment groups who are uh, helping to drive that um, those bids up there. So even though that investor may not have been the buyer, they were part of the equation and caused that operator to, to bid it up. Well, despite Concerns about costs, the latest Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer coming in at a reading of 126 in December. That's 24 points higher than just a month earlier. And researchers say although farmers were more positive regarding both the current as well as their expectations for the future, by far the biggest improvement was on their assessment of current conditions. Researchers say the change in perception among producers regarding their farm's financial situation could be attributed to producers taking time to estimate their farm's 2022 income following the completion of the fall harvest. Well, weather making more headlines this week and we'll get a check of your forecast next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. H&S high-capacity rakes feature independent rake beams that have the flexibility to flex three feet up or three feet down. Available in 12, 14, and 16 wheel sizes, there are no restrictions even when raking the heaviest of crops. Find out more at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather. Meteorologist Andrew Whitmire joins us now with weather this weekend. Andrew, a new year and a new winter storm that blasted the U.S. this week, and it sounds like it's not over yet. And really, the storm that has been out west is all thanks to this Pineapple Express that extends uh, from the Hawaiian Islands all the way across to the kind of the Pacific West here. And again, this Pineapple Express, it gets its name from again extending towards uh, Honolulu all the way over again towards the west coast here. It's what we call an atmospheric river stretching over 4,000 miles and it brings with it intense waves of moisture that again just kind of pinpoints and sits over an area. Sometimes it could be one to three days and sometimes it can be as long as two or more weeks and it does look like again we're going to be dealing with this moisture here 
as we go throughout the next uh, several days. In fact, just look at the rainfall amount here through next week. The northern half of California is going to be inundated with rain. In fact, they could be looking at a foot or more of rainfall across parts of northern California. Meanwhile, the central and southern half of the state likely going to be measuring upwards of close to could be around a half a foot of rain in some locations. And this is certainly going to help ease the drought conditions. The only bad news with this, though, kind of too much too fast, as well as uh, not uh, much of this rain is going to work its way into the Colorado River. Walking through the precipitation January 7th uh, through the 12th. Again, we're going to keep those deep greens out west uh, well above average uh, for precipitation. Meanwhile, not much expected throughout the central and Midwestern and Great Lake states uh, kind of staying in a kind of a neutral phase and we'll be watching a few systems that could bring with it a few more uh, scattered showers, uh, which could bring precipitation after just slightly above average here for parts of the east coast. Uh, going on forward into next week, uh, January 12th uh, through the 18th. Notice again, we still keep that Pineapple Express out west. I think that'll eventually start to break on down as we head closer towards uh, the mid portion here of uh, January, finally giving those folks uh, some relief. Looking at the drought monitor here released on January 5th and we zoom on into California. Notice how we still have those reds, but we kind of lose those deep reds, meaning that the exceptional drought is no more right now across uh, California. And we're likely going to see significant improvements out uh, west uh, with next week's outlook. Meanwhile, the heartland of the country here is still needing that uh, moisture. Uh, we're still seeing that exceptional drought out there for parts of a western and the southern half of Kansas. Let's take a look at the root zone map, which did take into account uh, the moisture that was received over the past a few days for California. Those those deeper blues showing up there. Again, they're being inundated with rain and in some locations a little bit too much rain too fast. Let's look at our jet stream pattern here. As we go throughout this week, we've kind of got a zonal west to east pattern taking shape here throughout much of the country, bringing quiet weather. Meanwhile, out west, we continue that Pineapple Express, but it does look like by next weekend, we'll start to kind of see this upper, upper level ridge beginning to build, and that could take aim across much of the country here by next weekend, with allowing temperatures across much of the lower 48 to remain at or above average. Thanks, Andrew. Well, extreme volatility again this week in the market. So is it mainly South American weather or is there more to the market story? Tommy Grisafi and Brian Split join me next to break it all down. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Tommy Grisafi and Brian Split joining us. Well, New Year, gentlemen, and one thing hasn't changed. That is the volatility in this market. Brian, to start off the new year, volatility continues to be the theme, but what is driving that this week? Well, so far it's been volatility of the downside in a lot of different commodities, uh, the energy markets, the agricultural markets. Those are two that I think most of us pay attention to very closely. Uh, and what we had at the end of the year of 2022 was a fund manager that was long corn, long soybeans, extremely long meal, and they did a very good job of window dressing that length and making those positions look good at the end of the year uh, to, to pad their profit for the year. Uh, and so what we've seen as soon as we've seen the calendar flip is the uh, the mindset from the fund manager to start taking profits. Uh, and I think they're concerned about what some of the uh, the bigger picture uh, changes to the balance sheets for ag commodities could look like as we uh, get into uh, the end of the, the first quarter. Uh, and start looking ahead to this year's crop. Well, Tommy, I mean, when you look at the trend overall, we know that there is 
a lot of time left in 2023 and a lot can happen. 2022 reminded us of that. But Tommy, when you look longer term, when you look at some of these future markets uh, out into, you know, 2024, 2025, even what is the trend telling us? Uh, year after year, when you look at the futures market, 23, 24, 25, even I noticed December 26 futures were listed. Uh, the border trade futures market has corn, cash corn, going back to 450 cash corn over three, four years. The Every year is lower than the next. Uh, a lot of the things we thought would happen in 22 didn't happen, uh, whether it be that Europe's going to be frozen out. They have a, a, a warm uh, weather season there. So as a as a grain trader, you really have to look at the energies and say, uh, most of the energies are half the value they were just six months ago. I guess the question I would pose to your listeners and viewers is, what bullish news do you think is going to come out that isn't already out there? Do you think we're going to have continued weather problems across the world? We're not going to have Russia invade Ukraine again. Uh, unless you start throwing around the word nuclear, I don't see what the big bullish fundamental news is and demands dropping off uh, in a big way here when it comes uh to our markets. Before we get into to Russia, Ukraine, and, and, and wheat, taking a look at South America, Brian, I mean, we're looking at La Nina, the shift to El Nino, but right now it looks like there are some weather issues in South America, but is it enough to really dampen the large crop outlook that really is the talk of the market right now? Yeah, you know, Argentina is still going to be a, a, a focus here in the short term. Uh, we've been getting rain, it seems like, every weekend, but the totals really aren't enough to, to fix the drought, per se. Uh, but we've also been getting some consistent moisture to at least stabilize the crop. Uh, but when you look at the size of Brazil plus Argentina together, uh, even though the USDA may still be 5 to 10 million tons uh, too high on their Argentine Brazil, or I, I should say their Argentine soybean estimate, uh, we're going to have a record crop combined when you look at Brazil, Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay. And I think eventually that's going to weigh on the market. So once the excitement of, of what's happening with soy meal uh, kind of runs its course, we've hit some major objectives there. Uh, we've retraced about 62% of the whole break from the August high to the October low in soy meal futures. So eventually at some point with the fund manager holding this extremely long uh, position in meal and, and linked in soybeans, uh, if we start to see them do what they've already started to do in corn, I think you could see the, the bean market and, and the meal market come under some pretty tremendous pressure. And maybe they just need to wait and see how this January report's going to come out. But from what I can tell, a lot of the trade believes that they could possibly look at reducing soybeans for export. And also the trend would be that if the USDA raises yields in November, which they did for both corn and beans, that they're going to raise it in the January report. Well, we do have some big USDA reports coming up. So what are some potential big market movers that we're keeping an eye on heading into that report? We'll cover that later coming up on U.S. Farm Report. Please stay with us. Well, you may have had a toast to celebrate the new year, but the post-pandemic trend of alcohol consumption is one that John Phipps looks into this weekend. This first weekend after New Year's Day seems as an auspicious time to check on one of the overlooked consequences of the pandemic. While it seems like it is sort of over, COVID has tricked us before. It is still hassling the people of China who seem to have postponed more than avoided the burden. 
With some superb, some superb charts by Justin Fox and Bloomberg, we can examine one aspect of the pandemic experts have noticed, namely consumption of more alcohol during and especially immediately after the isolations and quarantines were over. Even after adjustment for rampant inflation, it suggests drink choices changed as well as spending. So maybe the chart of spending is skewed by relatively greater consumption of more expensive beverages. So another chart shows apparent alcohol consumption measured in gallons of ethanol, which adds another perspective on consumption. Note it only goes to 2020, so the post-pandemic trends can only be extrapolated. It still suggests that the switch to spirits, mostly from beer, probably continues. In part, it is driven by younger drinkers reviving the idea of the cocktail, especially pre-mixed products. Also, we are drinking more craft beers in lower quantities, probably due to their price. The interesting aspect of this for rural America is the sharp decline in the number of dry counties, virtually all of which were rural. These maps show dry counties in red, comparing 2011 to 2018. Now, the greatest change occurred in Kentucky, Oklahoma, Texas, and Tennessee. I would guess agriculture's embrace of microbreweries and small distilleries, many of them on farms, represented an income source that weighed against the remnants of prohibition. The local tax revenue from liquor sales almost certainly helped the change as well. Note the change in Kentucky, whose farmers have really embraced the bourbon trail. Premium liquors from such small distilleries are the fastest growing market segment as American consumers scale up their tastes. These trends were already in place before the pandemic, but our pandemic binge shows no sign of stopping, and the health impact will be a problem for future generations. In fact, alcohol-related deaths have increased sharply since the pandemic. My guess is we'll be discovering more side effects of COVID. It might even be fair to say that the globe will suffer from a long COVID hangover. Thank you, John. And for those farmers growing hops, his customer support this week is serving up some answers for you. That's later. But first, we need to take a quick break and then we'll check in with Machinery Pete for Tractor Tales this weekend. Tractor Tales on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Farmall. 100 years of milestones, community, and memories. Since 1923, it's been the one for all. Celebrate with Case IH at RightRedTractor.com. Hey folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. And this week we're off to Nebraska to showcase a young man's hard work on a Farmall F20. So this is a International Harvester 1938 Fall Mall F20. Me and Wyatt conducted a complete restoration of this 38 F20. Anything that came off effectively came off. We had the head off, transmission was completely disassembled to the point that the rear axle housing was removed from the tractor, resealed, put back on it. We had the whole entire tractor sandblasted, painted, individual pieces. Just, if it came off, it came off. Me and Wyatt stumbled upon a FFA anti-tractor restoration competition and we decided that it'd be kind of fun to enter it in that and so the restoration started. Charlie's actually telling me he thought it was only going to be like a six month project that I'd be getting into and I thought well this would be a six month project be done in no time. <laughs> Here we are over two years later <laughs> it just got done. <laughs> 
It's good. I mean, just looking at it makes me feel like, wow, I can't believe we actually it's, accomplished it. It's unreal. Got it done. It truly is. After he got done restoring it, I actually took it to my great-grandpa. And he didn't tell me this before. He ran an F-20 on his family farm. And just hearing his stories over this tractor, he had an F-20 and a farmall regular. And just hearing those stories about it just made this restoration so much better. Well, chaos on Capitol Hill to start the new year, but it's not derailing agriculture's focus on policy priorities for 2023. So what are the chances that we'll see a farm bill this year? Our Farm Journal report is next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back. Well, the new year brought a new Congress and apparently a not-so-clean slate. But agriculture isn't losing its focus on policy priorities in the new year, especially when the Farm Bill could be a major agenda item for 2023. So what is the likelihood that we see a new Farm Bill this year? That's this weekend's Farm Journal report. The new year brought chaos on Capitol Hill as efforts to elect a new Speaker of the House proved to be a battle. A Speaker has not been elected. Farm Journal Washington correspondent Jim Wiesmeyer says the initial chaos doesn't seem to bode well for what some hoped could be a year of compromise. But there's one issue where Wiesmeyer has hope. To the few who think we have a six-month window in early 2023 with the new Congress to get a mini immigration reform through uh, from uh, both houses of Congress, the House and the Senate. Wiesmeyer thinks immigration policy will face an early test this year. I think the leaders in both political parties want to show the American public who are tired of the uncivility in Washington that they can do something significant. And one of the biggest areas is immigration reform. But that begins with border security. The Republicans are insisting they won't move uh, one iota unless they have border security. Once they get that, then they can give the Democrats some of the things that they want. From border security to more flexibility with DACA, both sides of the aisle have a list of wants and demands when it comes to immigration reform. So it could play out, but I think if we don't see it the first six months, it'll be politics as usual. Wiesmeyer admits this week's debacle over electing a new House Speaker could also impact agriculture. And any concessions made when electing a House Speaker could spark budget offsets that possibly puts agriculture under a microscope. But an area where he's cautiously optimistic is the future of the Farm Bill in 2023. The House, it's a jump ball because of new leadership of the House Ag Committee, G.T. Thompson. He definitely wants a new bill. He's going to get uh, you know, members from both political parties together uh, early in January to ask them what they want and how much it costs, and they'll decide whether or not they can afford it. The desire to see a new farm bill in 2023 is something groups like the National Corn Growers Association are also watching closely and watching for signals from the new House Ag Committee Chairman G.T. Thompson from Pennsylvania. He's made comments that I want to get this farm bill done in 23. Well, first of all, we've got a lot of new people coming into the, the politicians in uh, D.C., so we've got to educate them. We've got to be bipartisan because that's the way this bill is going to work. We uh, have to have both sides working together and there's going to be education there. So it's, uh, it's going to be a challenge. A challenge that NCGA is accepting, 
saying the biggest priority piece of the farm bill for corn growers is to leave the crop insurance portion alone. It works. Farmers are using it. It's a good public private entity. The farmer can use what percentage of he wants to insure his crop. So, you know, it, it's not that the old days they say, well, we're getting disaster payments from the government. We don't have to worry about that. You were taking our own measures in our hand with crop insurance, and that's the way we like it. The American Soybean Association agrees, also saying that crop insurance is the top priority in the farm bill for 2023. Uh, with our focus groups that we've had with farmers is definitely keeping the uh, crop insurance in place. It uh, was one of the priorities that they felt was very necessary. We need that safety net, want to keep that in place. But as the Midwest saw good yields in 2022, farmers in the plains and west struggled with moisture. That's why the National Sorghum Producers is pushing for relief. Our priority uh, from a farm bill standpoint or from a, a a standpoint in government is we would love to see 2022 disaster assistance for our for our growers and our producers. Uh, they they faced incredibly challenging and tough conditions from from the Gulf Coast to to South Dakota. It was just a tough year and. Uh, we would love to see an opportunity to have uh, disaster assistance for 2022. Craig Meeker, who also farms in Kansas, says those payments are vital for many sorghum producers. Some producers really need that 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 influx of cash to 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 be viable going forward. And not only is it an incredibly important thing for producers, it's an incredibly important thing to rural Main Street and how we keep the mom and pop grocery stores, how we keep the mom and pop uh, cafes open as well. It's just a thriving economy that depends upon producers having cash in their pockets. While there are some natural disasters that will continue to require ad hoc payments, Wiesmeyer thinks with some slight adjustments in the farm bill, agriculture could avoid some of the extra payments that were needed the past couple of years. They're looking at what were the reasons for those ad hoc disaster payments and a lot of times I've been told that it was high deductibles in some states on crop insurance and also in the specialty crop areas that they have to improve uh, the revenue assurance and, and crop uh, production for specialty crops, of which there are a lot grown, California, Michigan, Florida, etc. Whether a farm bill will reach a resolve in 2023 is anyone's guess, but it could also hinge on how the turmoil at the Capitol this week plays out. In the end result, uh, I think it's easier to get a farm bill than most people think. Just give the Democrats what they want for food and nutrition, and then you plug the holes in the farmer safety net and some crop insurance to avoid having to have a multi-billion dollar ag disaster payments each year. Well, both Tommy and Brian expressed concerns over the trend of commodity prices for not just 2023, but 2024 and even 2025. We'll talk about what could be the big market movers, though, in USDA's report next week. That discussion happens next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF. BASF, helping you to do the biggest job on earth. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. All right, Brian, heading into these big January reports, you talked about it earlier, kind of based on what USDA did in November, what it leads you to believe that they'll make some adjustments on, on yield in, in January. But when you look at overall crop production, what are some of the things that you're really watching that could be big market movers? Well, I think you're going to see the potential for the balance sheet to loosen up. Uh, from both sides of, of the balance sheet. So what I mean by that is it, these are supply and demand balance sheets. And so I think 
uh, again, when you look at the uh, the trend of, of increasing yield in the November report, then translating to an increase in yield in the January report, we could very well see the, the supply side of the balance sheet for both corn and soybeans grow. Uh, then you look at demand, uh, corn for exports been a concern. I think uh, the trade is in the mindset that we could see an additional uh, 75 to 100 million bushels come off of corn for export. Uh, the trade's in the mindset that we could potentially see 50 million, million bushels come off of, of soybeans for export. Uh, and so what that means is that you're going to have the carryout grow uh, in, in, in the supply and the demand side of the balance sheet. Uh, and that's going to look very bearish, especially when the, the fund manager is holding long positions in both markets. Well, Tommy, as you hear Brian and what he's watching coming into these USDA reports next week, I know you're one that really advises farmers, you know, block out some of that noise. There could be a lot of noise with these reports. So what is your advice to farmers, how to position themselves and really adjust their mindset heading into what could possibly be a big market mover? Sure. One of the weak legs that could be kicked out from the American farmers, they do not have federal crop insurance. So as we enter January, we're going to be January and we'll establish federal crop during February. There's two months of extreme risk every month, of course, risky. And then we're going to come into that March planning intention. So to add on to what Brian said, the fund managers are long. There's a lot of grain on the countryside. Sure, the basis is hot, but that's because that grain is being held by strong hands. My biggest concern for the farmer is that big crops start to show up across the world. Demand uh, tones down, the energy sector tones down, and everything goes from bullish to bearish. And if you don't believe me, look at Tesla stock. There was a point when it, it, it could only go up and now it seems like it only go down. Look what happened to the NASDAQ stocks. Look what happened to energies. Crude oil or grains and farmland are one of the last two big winners. The most winning asset last year was farmland. I'm not so sure with interest rates high that that's going to be the case in 2023 time. Something that, that Tommy had, had uh, mentioned was the uh, spring average price for crop insurance. It's not set yet. And just so the producer can understand, they do have short dated options that are March short dated. They're priced off of new crop. They will expire February 24th, which is a Friday. Uh, the 25th and 26th is a Saturday, Sunday, and then 27th and 28th is that Monday, Tuesday. So there's only two trading days left in the month by the time these options expire. Great tool to, to help hedge your, your spring revenue levels. Uh, now, as far as outside markets, yes, I'm watching the equity trade. I'm looking for potential liquidity events. If we take out the, the recent lows there, 3,500 S&P, I think is going to be a major level. And if we take that out, that could be a problem. And I'm also watching the energies. I know Tommy had mentioned the um, natural gas market being less than half of its, its uh, peak value, trading recently under $4. Uh, but you got to look at, the, at crude oil. You got to look at heating oil and, and RBOB. Um, and if we start to really see uh, crude oil trade sub-70, um, you know, that's been a big part of the uh, the idea that that grains, especially you look at, at soybean oil tied very closely to, to crude oil and then just ethanol usage. Uh, when you see the price of energy come down, that's going to have a major impact on, on grains. Wheat prices not been pretty market action there. So what is your concern as we move through January and into February? Well, uh, although North Dakota is famous for growing uh, Minneapolis spring wheat, the whole world can grow wheat and Russia can really grow wheat. And they would like nothing more than to trash the markets and uh, supply uh, people with wheat. You know, the question time last year when wheat went to 14 and we're a half off uh, sale on that is were we ever running out of wheat or was the function of the market with new ETFs on the stock side uh, manipulating or plowing into the futures? Was that really the problem? Not everyone can grow corn and beans, but everyone in the world 
is in the wheat business. And they became, to Brian's point about the countries down in South America, agriculture has been good and everyone's going full blown back into production agriculture, add technology to that, that we're growing more bushels with less. It's a real problem for wheat moving forward. All right, Tommy, it sounds like no matter what, as we look at this year, yes, there is this bearish tone, this sentiment, this concern, not only for this year, but the next couple of years. But as you look at volatility, and that could be the name of the game once again this year, what is your advice for farmers? Well, that's a great question. I, I guess my advice would be I'd rather uh, want to risk 15 cents on owning a call than lose the dollar fifty in the physical market. Not only could they lose the dollar fifty on 2022 bushels, but they could very easily lose the dollar fifty on 23 bushels. I'm of the opinion that the market and the government has given the ag community a lot of money over the last few years. And I believe it's now the job of the market, interest rates, labor costs, high cost production, to extract that money back out of the ag community. We'll flash forward in a year and see if we were right. Brian, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, you know, Tommy mentioned interest rates. Um, and, and if you're a believer that uh, money supply, M2 money supply has been a big part of the overall inflationary trend, uh, I would uh, urge you to look at a chart of M2 money supply right now. And uh, I think you'll have some pretty strong deflationary fears if you do that. All right, Brian, Tommy, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We appreciate it. We'll be watching the big reports next week. All right, we need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Well, he was a television newsman who was once famously described as the most trusted man in America. And many of you may have tuned in to Walter Cronkite's broadcasts, but his personal story is a journey and one that we travel across the countryside for with Andrew McRae. Oh, yeah, so then where was the Kennedy? Dom DeBrinkett is a professor of history at Missouri Western State University. One of his favorite stories of the past is a broadcaster with roots right here in this town. Walter Cronkite is St. Joseph, Missouri's most favorite son. Uh, he was born here. He spent his first six months here. While six months as a baby may not sound significant, St. Joe was always important in Cronkite's life, as his grandparents lived in town, and one of his first radio broadcasting jobs was with the station just down the road in Kansas City. He was a war correspondent during World War II, and by 1950 had joined CBS television. He soon became one of the most respected journalists on screen. Many called him the most trusted man in America. Cronkite had the advantage that journalists don't have today, which is three television networks as opposed to a 24-hour stream. He had 30 minutes to communicate to people. Dom says Cronkite's fact-based reporting and Midwestern sensibility helped him gain the trust of television viewers. Over the decades, Cronkite delivered some of the world's most important news, both good and bad, to his audience. Where President Kennedy lay after being taken from the Dallas street corner where he was shot, say that he is dead. He was at the heart of America's most um, famous broadcast moments, whether it was Kennedy's assassination, uh, the space race. He was there. Perhaps it's not fair to compare today's television reporters to Cronkite. Times have changed, yet his work is still an example of great broadcasting. Can you imagine calling any of our journalists today the most trusted man or woman in America? We deliberately select our news based on our political beliefs more often than we do on who's delivering it. Cronkite delivered the news with his standard send-off each night. And that's the way it is, Friday, March 6, 1981. The Memorial Museum here on campus has Cronkite's work desk, some of his Emmy Awards, and lots of video clips of his decades reporting the news. Dom says there's one highlight of most visitors' tours to the memorial. 
The newsroom is our favorite part of the exhibit. Uh, it is a replication of the studio. We have all of our guests who come through, whether they're touring themselves or whether we're giving these tours, we always make sure they sit at the desk. And while times have changed, it's certainly our goal to learn from Cronkite and share stories with integrity with the American public. And that's the way it was, traveling the countryside in St. Joseph, Missouri. I'm Andrew McCrae. You can watch and hear more of Andrew's travels at AmericanCountryside.com. Thanks, Andrew. Well, the hop crop and the battle to find crop insurance, that's customer support next. Well, as we heard earlier in the show, crop insurance is a focus for many commodity groups this year. So why can't hop farmers be included too? That's customer support this week. Well, let's start the year with a challenging question from Annette Abe Abe in Spokane, Washington. I live in Washington state where some of the finest hops are grown for the beer brewing industry. I also work in the property and casualty insurance business. My question is regarding crop insurance for the hop crop. When do you anticipate the federal government will allow crop coverage for hops to be purchased through the federal crop insurance program? Up until recently, coverage for the peril of wind damage for the valuable hop crop has been available in the private sector using the insurance mechanism. This coverage is becoming increasingly difficult to find in the private sector. Can you answer my question? And I didn't have a clue, but with the craft beer industry growth in the last decade in our country, your question was a very good excuse to learn a little about uh, hops. Specialty crops are often covered by federal crop insurance, but hops have two big obstacles to qualifying for it. First, hop production is like pumpkin production, virtually all in one area, the PNW. When crops are concentrated geographically, it's often expensive, often prohibitively so, to underwrite. One storm or other local weather event can generate massive claims and you don't have a big pool of growers, un unaffected growers, to spread the costs over. As you mentioned, hops growers cannot get broad affordable coverage for the most part, and it's partly for this reason. To be included in the Federal Risk Management Agency and more importantly qualify for the massive premium subsidies is determined by language in the Farm Bill. Whether you agree or not, the government has ruled private insurance is sufficient for hops growers' needs. It becomes then a matter of political persuasion and appropriate language added to the next Farm Bill, which will be written this year, 2023. I think growers can make a stronger case every farm bill cycle as climate change has had at least as much impact, if not more, on the PNW than any other region. Thanks, John. And don't forget, you can check out all of John's commentaries on our Farm Journal YouTube page. All right, when we come back, a giant step for ag tech this week. Those details next. Well, a giant step for ag tech happened this week. That's because what's believed to be the world's first ag-focused satellite system is now in space. EOS Sat-1 was launched from SpaceX site in Cape Canaveral, Florida. The satellite was on board as part of SpaceX Transporter 6 mission. The satellite, built by Dragonfly Aerospace, is the first of a seven-satellite 
constellation. It will be put in low Earth orbit for EOS data analytics. The remaining six satellites will be deployed over the next three years. Dragonfly says this will be the world's first agriculture-focused satellite constellation, providing the agriculture and forestry industry with high-quality data to support efficient and sustainable practices. It says images obtained from the satellite will deliver valuable information for harvest, monitoring, application mapping, and seasonal planning, along with analyzing things such as soil moisture, yield prediction, and biomass levels. And from satellites to the future of electric tractors, it was all explored during the Consumer Electronics Show this week, otherwise known as CES, and we were actually there to see it. So join us next week as we'll give you a front row seat to why agriculture, and specifically John Deere, has decided to take such a large leap in investment at CES, what's traditionally been a major trade show for consumer electronics. Again, our coverage from CES and some one-on-one -on -one conversations will happen on the show next weekend. So make sure to join us for that. Well, that does it for our show this weekend. From all of us at U.S. Farm Report, I'm Tyne Morgan. Thank you so much for watching, and be sure to join us again right here next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.